Shalom everybody. I'm Liel K. Bridgeford and this is Unmarginalized. Just note that the following episode contains references to ableism and discrimination, so please take care as you listen. My guest this week is Emily. Emily is a woman who lives on urination. She's a writer and an advocate. She likes books and is passionate about the continuous self-exploration as a way of understanding ourselves and each other. Thank you for joining me, Emily. Hi, it's good to be here. You too. I'm so glad we can finally do this. I know. It's been a while in the making, but I'm so glad we can sit down and um, record this. I'm really excited to see what we're going to chat about. Why don't we start with... Um, if you can tell us, me and our listeners, what kind of identities do you identify as navigating in terms of intersectionality? It's a really good question. Um, I've been thinking about it a lot lately. Um, I guess identify as being um, a woman. I do identify as being disabled and chronically ill. And I guess how that is represented in my life is very different and from what people looking in would see. Um, Yeah, I guess those are the kind of main intersections, but um, the more I learn um, about different identities, the more I go, oh, I I didn't realise that I could possibly be at this intersection as well. So it's really interesting to learn more about. (laughs) When did you first realise you were navigating intersectionality? Um, I guess maybe uh, around 17, I was actually diagnosed with clinical depression. So I guess I do identify with the mental um, health or mental illness intersection as well. And I remember the first time trying to navigate school to get an extension and teachers not actually understanding what it meant or the consequences of being depressed actually looked like. And I was at a selective school. And a selective school in New South Wales is an academically selective school. So so in year six, you sit a um, selective school test. So it's, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's basically a test on English, maths and problem solving, I think. And the top people from those tests then can get offered a place in selective schools. Um, So... It was that realisation that people don't necessarily understand their experiences and the teachers didn't understand that you could also, you could be at a selective school and have mental health issues or you could be at a selective school and maybe need to take two years to do your HSE. And I guess that was a kind of a pivoting moment for me because I had to and advocate for myself, but I ne- didn't necessarily have the language to do that at 17. And then when I moved on to uni, I had had that language, but then when I developed all my other chronically ill things, I realised that um, how I'd advocate for myself would change again because um, a lot of people didn't understand mental illness, but then they didn't understand chronically ill, and it was almost easier to use the mental illness <laughs> to advocate for myself so right I guess it was at those moments where I realized that um like I could I could be a student and be a woman and have mental health issues and have be chronically ill and I was also diagnosed with inattentive ADHD when I was 19 and then that reframed everything and I don't normally talk about diagnosis in detail but it was just realizing Mm. that we I guess myself and disabled people or people with disabilities in general aren't just this static thing we're not tick boxes and when I finally realized that um, I kind of identified as being disabled and that it wasn't a dirty word I realized that I brought along my chronic illness experience and identity then um, my mental health um, I guess identity relearning everything with ADHD and it was like oh there isn't a group 
for me. <laughs> like I don't necessarily fit in yeah. one box and it's really hard to find people to meet you at that intersection and to actually acknowledge that we're not just one thing. Um, and yeah. I guess that's why I love chatting to you because you get that. But a lot of people um, they'll yeah. go, oh, so you've had a history of depression, but you're also disabled, but you're working, but you're female, but you have ADHD. You, you can't, like, people can't just get there. It doesn't work together. Like, we don't know what to do I with do, this. And I have, um, I found treatments or more not treatments, more like management strategies that work for me, but they're really outside yeah. the box of what people expect. So if I explain it, they go, what? you have to go into hospital once a year for two or three weeks. I'm like, yeah, that, that gives me quality of life, but you have to go into hospital. I can't believe it. You have to use a mobility aid sometimes, but not all the time. Like it's just, it's <laughs> yeah. mind blowing for them. So that's when I realized that I guess people don't see life experiences or people as complex beings. They just, we mostly see people as how we want to see them. And if someone's seeing you as a student, then you're a student. But anything outside that box is just um, seems uncomprehensible <laughs> to people. Yeah, absolutely. We use stereotypes way too much. And so when we do identify with multiple kind of, I guess, disadvantaged groups, that becomes really complicated and people either don't know what to do with it they're scared of it um and obviously using stereotypes sometimes doesn't work because they they're used to thinking of someone with a disability or with mental illness a particular way and all of a sudden you're there and you're like oh but you don't look like someone that i imagine to have a mental illness or you don't look like someone who is chronically ill or this is not what i was taught in university that you're meant to be using for your treatment and i'm wondering like you know really fascinated by the kind of advocating side of things, how that changed for you over time. And I know that, and you mentioned that, you know, disability wasn't a dirty, you realized it wasn't a dirty word because I know that for me, definitely in Israel, disability is still is a dirty word. So just practicing it helps yeah. kind of destigmatize, but it is still definitely a dirty word in a lot of places. Um, and I'm wondering how, because obviously we are talking now about, your disability and range of kind of diverse identities openly and you've been doing that for a little while but it wasn't always the case was it no um I guess it's it's hard to come to the realization because um I'm trying to think of where to start but to you an example when um or when I started becoming chronically ill and had to go through a lot of doctors, um, it was like something was wrong with me and I needed to find a cure or get a diagnosis yeah. to find out. And not knowing that and going through years of tests and different treatments and things like that, you just, it's like you feel like you need to be fixed or there's something wrong with you and you don't get very like you're not encouraged to find an identity out of it it's like you don't know what's wrong with you so therefore you have to keep trying and then that will be you yeah so um for a while it was like I just wanted to be normal what whatever that is yeah. and I think knowing what normal whatever that is looked like um knowing that I I've had um more energy and more time and more skills and more capacity than to lose that it's like I don't want to identify with being disabled or chronically ill like why why do I want to say that I'm not normal and yeah. so I'm kind of lost the question but it but then it got to the point, it was like, well, this is a huge part of my life and sometimes it's all of my life. Like, why can't that be a part of me? And I wasn't 
it's probably about maybe seven years ago, I wasn't ready to feel proud of that, but I realized like, yes, I've talked about being depressed and I've spoken about having ADHD. So why can't I then identify with this and use it to be myself, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, but it's a really weird journey because some days like today, like I'm really happy to chat about it. And then other days it's like, I don't, I just, I just want to get on with life. Like I did. So it's, I don't think it's like a static thing. No. I think we always change and mm. um, feel differently on different moments. Absolutely. And I agree with that. Um, and definitely I think what you're talking about is something that I've felt when I was growing up. I went through treatments and quote unquote because those treatments goal was to make me as normal quote unquote as possible you know to make my legs straight and the same length as the other leg and all that um and I definitely felt like something needed to be fixed and that's sort of the language that was used as well by medical professionals so it's almost impossible not to internalize that I think and that is a big journey that you know you have gone through and I've gone through a similar you know different but kind of a similar journey of going actually maybe I don't need to be fixed as such maybe I am okay as I am and maybe I can embrace that part of myself um and that's you know really interesting is it was there anything in particular that you remember like a moment that where you felt like oh I can be proud or a particular thing that happened or something you saw or anything um, I think there were, I've been thinking about this a lot lately and I think it was really a collection of small moments. I don't think there was like a huge moment where I was like, oh, I'm proud. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was more, I guess, being connected to the online disability community and finding people like Carly Finlay, Nina Tame, yourself, um, there's plenty more that I can't think of right now, yeah. but being able to see people identifying as disabled or chronically ill um, and have community and connection and actually just live their lives yeah. was really a light bulb moment for me and realising it's like, oh, I I can love to read books and I can still be disabled. Like I'm, I don't just have to be, hi, I'm Emily. Here's all my medical diagnoses <laughs> and yep. um, please accept me or love me. <laughs> it was, I, it, it was kind of like, just in case here's the disclaimer. Now I can be like, hi, I'm Emily. Um, I love books. I'm, I've been on a podcast. I have a cat. Exactly. Um, I like to write and, you know, like if I feel like I don't have to give my medical history to be validated or for someone to understand me. Yep. And I think that was just a collection of moments um, from being connected to a community and I guess realising my own internalised ableism and just learning and relearning things. Um We'll probably talk about this later, but um, when I first was like, oh, I'm chronically ill, um, was when I was first um, diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which is a, oh, it's, it's an umbrella diagnosis okay. of a lot of different symptoms that's mostly characterised by basically a heightened um, nervous system. So I joined a lot of fibromyalgia Facebook groups and yep. started using that on hashtags. But what I found um, it was that some of that community, that was it. Um, it was like I've been diagnosed with this and people were trying to one-up people. So if mm -hmm. I post, hey, I've got this new symptom, I'm actually getting a lot of pain in my shoulder, um, has anyone experienced this before? And go 
someone will be like, oh, well, I get pain in two of my shoulders, like, all the time. And then someone will be like, what? oh, well, I get pain in my shoulders and my back and I've had it for 20 years and nothing's helped. And it was like everyone would just oh. trauma dump and, like, try and out uh, symptom yep. each other. And it just got to the point where it was so toxic that I just had to leave a lot of those groups. And then when I was like, okay, why don't I like this? How can I feel pride in myself and be chronically ill? And that's when I found other people to connect with and follow and people actually, um, you know, acknowledging, yeah, this is crap. Yeah. We have these symptoms, but, you know, we can still be creative. We can still have hobbies. We can still have a life. Yeah. And I don't mean that in an ableist way as in to be productive, no. but more that, um, you know, I can have these diagnoses, I can have these symptoms and it's crap sometimes, but I can also find joy in little things. I guess that was a big moment when I realised, like, how do I want to be and what, I guess, do I want to feed myself and Mm. I want to connect with people with similar things just to see how people live their lives but I don't want to be in that negative feedback and that loop absolutely because yeah that's really traumatizing isn't it just a constant kind of um negative conversation and that's definitely not what disability community is about as we know um it's about much much more than that and i'm so glad you found that and this is interesting that you talk about it because it was one of the things i was curious about to talk to you about you know because you do identify as a disabled person but also as having chronic illness and can you talk about sort of the difference between the two like if you know is there do you feel that they're competing against each other sometimes or are they kind of, is there overlaps? How do you explain the two things? <laughs> a great question. So I will say that it's a very individual perspective. Um, some people who are chronically ill or have an invisible illness will just say that's it and they don't identify as being disabled. Other people mm-hmm. will say, no, I'm disabled. I'm not chronically ill. And I'm kind of in the middle because... Okay. I started off in the chronic illness community. I'm still in there, but not as much. And I found that for me, I don't physically look disabled. So I never really thought that I was disabled enough, which once again, is internalized ableism. Like I'm like, oh, I need to use a mobility aid occasionally, but um, I don't look at so why would I call myself that yeah it was when I started learning more about the disability community but reclaiming that word um was then I realized I'm like well in my life I guess I I do have multiple invisible disabilities and I took me a while to realize well I I I'm I'm disabled and I'm part of this community Um, and there are still sections of each community who would say that I don't belong in either because um, there's a lot of gatekeeping in both communities, unfortunately. Okay. Um, And, yeah, it's just in the end I was like I really felt that I connected with both communities, but in, I guess, the disabled community, seeing the activism, but also reclaiming what it is to be disabled just really made me realise, like, I want to be a part of this community. And um, the activism for both communities can be the same, but can be different. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a a hard question, but I think, sorry, (laughs) no, that's okay. Um, I mean, I love having this conversation because some people identify as having, I normally say maybe an invisible disability, but 
someone on Instagram has recently started calling it a dynamic disability, which mm-hmm. I love because that really resonates with me because, you know, one day I might look fine, I can do everything, and then something might happen like cut open a frozen bagel and, you know, yeah. I'm out of it for a month, which has just happened. And I think the word disability and being disabled is seen as a permanent um, thing, like it's a it's mm. a constant state. Whereas with yeah. chronic illness, I see that more as a fluctuating thing. So, and I think it's a personal thing, but as long yeah. as we're not gatekeeping those terms and I guess if you don't know what gatekeeping means it means just like putting in um posts or requirements to be able to access a community that's a a great answer and I think it is really individual absolutely but you you raise so many great points about um the different communities and definitely gatekeeping is something that many people don't realize happens in these communities and it's quite for me, it saddens me to to know that that is happening. Um, I definitely have felt the sense of, you know, I'm not disabled enough as well. And interestingly, also identify, I have read somewhere about dynamic disability and definitely relate to that. And I think a lot of people do because in it changes day to day, week to weeks. For me, even within a day, like I can wake up being unable to step on my foot at all. And then a few hours of resting can mean that I can do more walking or whatever. So I think that's really, um, you know, resonates with me as well. And I guess one of the things that I, um, I was curious about in terms of, you know, your experience and from, cause I know for me, I was thinking about it that because of my, I guess my disability and my trauma history, I have some anxiety too and whatever. Um, I feel like sometimes I have it within myself I've got like competing needs so I feel like my brain is saying to me I really need to go for a walk and get some fresh air and you know practice mindfulness I'm like I'm best at practicing mindfulness when I'm like walking yeah but then my foot can just be like no way you are not moving out of this couch right now um so do you oh, get that, that, yes. that experience sometimes um anything like that yeah so okay. much of the time um <laughs> I have complex regional pain syndrome, which is also to do with the nervous system, but it basically sends, it tells my body that um, I'm in danger when I'm not. So um, it happened after I had a surgery on my wrist. So some days, like most days, it might just be a twinge if I pick up something, but um as I mentioned, the frozen bagel incident, I yeah. opened a frozen bagel and actually um, pulled the tendon that um, I have CRPS in. And for the last month, I've had this massive flare up. So basically, it feels like my wrist's on fire. <laughs> and there's oh. nothing I can really do until it passes. And there are some management options which have worked. But knowing that things can change by me just picking up a cup of tea or being on a bus and someone knocking my wrist with their bag just changes everything completely. And I also get a lot of fatigue, so it can be really on like really, really quick, or it could be a build up. And um, with like my ADHD, I like to be able to move around and like go outside is so that's so important but lately in Sydney it's been really humid and if I go outside that can flare up my fibromyalgia so I get really bad muscle pain but I need to move the muscles to get exercise but then if I exercise too much it can knock me out with fatigue for a few days it's almost conflicting access needs for myself (laughs) like yeah it's sure um and that's just an example, but um, I, it's like, do I make the choice? Do I finish work early and go to sleep for two hours, which will mean my symptoms will be better, but then I lose two hours work, but then I might be able to work the full day 
tomorrow, but then yeah, just flare up and it might not be able to work like yeah. today. And I think that's the biggest thing I struggle with. And it's like finding, I'm going to see it as a pendulum and it's finding that space in between and knowing when I need to rest, but then also knowing that my symptoms will pass, but then knowing that I have to do things. And with CRPS, with my wrist, even though it's in pain, it's not actual damage, but I need to keep using it. Otherwise, I can lose functioning in my hand and the pain gets worse. Yeah, I haven't figured it out. <laughs> I almost, yeah, I almost wish there was like, I could just like, get what I'm feeling or experiencing like in an app so I can go okay what's the most important thing I'll be like oh I want that app yeah it doesn't exist but like it would be amazing just to be like it's like sometimes I'm like I, I can you just I don't know what's going on um I mean it makes yeah. life interesting but it's just it takes up so much I mean you probably feel the same it takes up so much energy and deciding mm. like how much energy do I have today if this symptom happens will I still be able to get home okay um yeah yeah it's I I haven't worked it out yet (laughs) (laughs) well and as we said things are changing with identity I think that it's similar in our bodies you know our bodies constantly change and um that's not something that I feel is still reflected properly in our health system you know because we we are viewed still very statically and you know if I I want that app that imaginary app that we're talking yeah. about because I feel the same it's like the physio tells me I need to do these exercises three to five times a week and I'm like well but then I don't have time to do cardio exercise and you know that's really important for my mental health and my you know heart health and blah 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 and it's like and if I do everything that everyone recommends me to do I'll have no time for anything else so it's like how do you prioritize all those needs it's really complicated yeah and I mean you mentioned navigating the health system like I'm not disabled or static enough to qualify for the NDIS but um, because my conditions are seen as changing um and I don't oh, actually fit okay. in to a particular box. Um, but I find it really hard that when people talk about this medical model, like this equals disabled or this equals yep. you you need this type of support. And it's like, well, we're all changing and life is dynamic and messy. And I guess so are our bodies and minds especially over the last year. Um, Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really important point about the NDIS that for people who are not aware to understand the NDIS is the disability support funding in Australia. And that is not actually a good indicator of whether someone identifies or doesn't identify with the disability. And it's really important to note that a lot of conditions, quote unquote, don't qualify for NDIS and there's lots of other reasons why people wouldn't qualify as well or wouldn't know that they're eligible depending on their visa status and their English level and other social circumstances as well so just important to note that um and Emily if you don't mind going back in time a little bit because we talked about kind of growing up and I'm really as a you know someone who wasn't born in Australia I was one of the first things that I was introduced in Australia was footy I mean AFL (laughs) here in Melbourne yeah and I was told that you know sports is a really big part of the Australian culture and you know I saw that in a lot of places um so can you talk about your experience of that because I also noticed there's a lot of like I guess, Paralympians represented, uh, you know, disabled Paralympians represented in the media in quite, you know, quite significantly, I guess, compared to what I knew previously before I came here. So can you talk about how you experience sports and if that representation kind of shaped you in any kind of way? Uh, No. (laughs) I really, growing up, like, I did I did piano and Irish dancing 
I but did piano I was... too. Sorry, just a note. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. No, that's fine. Um, and I did lots of instruments. Like my family is very musical, but sport, I didn't get it. And it was actually really horrible because I didn't know how to play soccer. And I would be the kid on the PE team. Like I would be the last person cho- chosen. I was really uncoordinated. Um, yeah, just same. I hated it. Uh, and um, one thing I, I did enjoy ice skating and roller skating yep. growing up. I wouldn't probably try it again now because if I fell over, that would not be good for me. <laughs> okay. um, but yeah, I didn't get it. Like everyone would be like, it'd be the NRL, NRL which is the National Rugby League thing <laughs> in Australia. Like, yeah. I just didn't get it. Like people just watching sweaty big men with tight shorts, like <laughs> wrestling each other. Like I, 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 I just didn't get it. Um, and I wanted to get it. Like I played a little bit of touch football and mm. Oz tag. I love that because I could, you just focus on the tag and okay. run and get it. But yeah, I just never got it. And I've always wanted to be a part of the sporting thing because it's just such in Australian culture, but I didn't get it. Like I, in, I remember she remembered like once I had to be on a, a basketball team, I had no idea how to play and I couldn't focus or get it. And anyway, someone tried to throw the ball to me. It actually bounced off my head twice oh my before goodness. I caught it. <laughs> And good cat. Everyone was just like, Emily, how could you not get it? And I guess in the disability community, there is a huge um, representation uh, being a Paralympian or someone who is disabled who plays sports. And I just don't get it. And I wish I could see myself represented. But um, this might sound con. Controversial, and this is just my opinion, but disability, like, it doesn't need to be overcome. And when I see a lot of Paralympians, not all, but the way they're presented or represented, it was like, this person had this accident and they have risen up from the ashes and pushed themselves and now they've done gold for Australia and you can too. Like, you need to get up at 5 a.m. and do this. And they don't you know, mentioned that they had, they were quite rich and had access to, you know, quite good emergency care and yep. rehab that they could actually afford to get, I don't know, a, a really expensive, um, you know, they could afford a wheelchair that could play sports, um, that they had the support around them to actually get to the country to compete. Um yep. I find that really hard because it's like I would love to be able to stand up and go, yes, I'm going to play tennis for Australia or, yes, I'm going to ice skate for Australia. I don't even know if that's in the Paralympics, but I wouldn't be disabled enough on their terms. Oh, like, you wouldn't qualify. I, I couldn't compete oh, because that's I'm interesting. physically disabled. Technically, I'm able-bodied in my physicality. So it's like... I can't do that, but there's no way I could go to the normal Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've always struggled with that because it's like sport is such a huge thing in Australia. And I think a lot of people, you know, they see themselves represented in Paralympians and that's fantastic. But for me, it's like, like I, I don't feel yeah. that I'm represented there. And there's a particular type of image and a narrative that gets told around that and I think um Stella Young called it inspiration porn and it's this idea like you know push through just push past your disability like you know and you see pictures of you know this person has no legs and they still got up in the morning and and did this what are you doing with your life and all this kind of stuff and it's like no like Mm -hmm. my life is not meant to be your inspiration porn or for you to go now Emily feels like her hands on fire but she still wrote that blog article so why aren't you writing like that's not what I want to be and I sometimes struggle because 
I mean, I found people that I look up to now, but originally it was like someone with a chronic illness, like a fangirl here, Tara Moss, um, yep. who I love, who's an amazing writer, unfortunately has complex regional pain syndrome. And she was the first celebrity or someone in the media that I saw that actually had what I had. And she's wonderful. Like she's fashionable. She writes books. She's like, yep. she'll take pictures with her mobility aids. Like, She's an amazing advocate. And when I saw her, I'm like, I found my sports person. Like, yes. And going, these are my people. And I guess a lot of people feel that way when they see a sports star or a Paralympian. But for me, I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> so maybe I'm not Australian. <laughs> But I just I think so yeah. many important points and I don't think it's controversial to say that, you know, disability is something to get overcome is a very damaging concept and it is an ableist concept that is, you know, rooted in ableism and kind of forms a part of the medical model of, of disability. Um, and it impacts negatively a lot of people, myself included. Um, and thank you for raising these really important points because I think how we are represented is extremely important. And if it, if the narrative is only around overcoming our disability, that is not a positive narrative. So um, this is why we're having this chat, which is yeah. wonderful. And I am wondering if we can, um, and talking about kind of doctors and the medical model. Um, I don't know if I told you this before, but I, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a doctor. So did I. <laughs> which now yeah. I can laugh at. <laughs> yeah, because I looked up to these doctors who would eventually fix, quote unquote, fix me. Um, but then finally I realised it's not what I wanted to do and thank God I did. Um, but I feel that I guess the reason that I wanted to get into that profession um, was sort of to maybe beyond the providing end where I was receiving support, mm. if that makes sense. And eventually I got into mental health um, because I feel that I would never got enough mental health supports through the medical yeah. system. So that's a long question to ask if you, you know, because you work in the disability field as well. If you have a similar kind of draw into the field of wanting to give back or connect with community or how do you feel that, why do you feel you chose that particular kind of work? That's a great question. It's actually a very complicated answer. Um, but I will say that um, I was drawn to working in, I guess, um, the disability community because I realised how important it was for my voice to be heard, but also that I'm not the traditional sense of what you think of when you think of disabled so if that meant that providing support or bringing that understanding to the sector would help other people, then that was really important to me. But originally, I actually, I really wanted to be a teacher. I've always wanted to be a teacher. But um, when I was studying at university, I think in my second or third year was when the chronic illness pain stuff started happening and it was really hard to get support and accommodations for my ADHD. But then when this chronic illness stuff happening started happening, I couldn't get the support to finish my practicals. And every time I'd go on prac for a few weeks, like I'd have to take time off. Like I'd, I'd get so unwell. Um, and everyone in charge, like all the lecturers, um, they're like, no, you have to do full days. You have to do it in a block. You have to do this. No, you can't have an extension because you got an extension last time. Um, no, we're doing an 8 a.m. lecture recording uh, lecture, but we're not going to record it because we need you to be there physically. And there was just so many things that it got to the point where it's like, I can't keep doing this. And, and it makes me really sad because... Like teaching and tutoring is is mm. what I love and um and yeah it's it kind of got to the point where I was like okay so I'm not going to be able to fulfill this qualification and I might not be able to actually be in this professional field and get the support I need um and I've had other friends with chronic illnesses who didn't get through the screening with the Department of Education because of 
if they disclosed, they wouldn't get through. But if they didn't disclose and something happened, they wouldn't be supported or covered. Oh. So that's a long story. But in the end, I was like, well, what am I passionate about? And that's, you know, education. I can still bring those skills and that passion in to the disability sector. And a lot of information and things can be quite static and very this is the way we do things. This is what disability is like. And it isn't the, where I work, we are more intersectional, but traditionally it's like, if you've got a mental illness, you're over here. If you've got a physical disability, you're over here. I'm kind of intersecting at those cause I'm not fully one thing, but I'm not fully the other. And it's like a mixed bag of lollies and so I guess I feel really privileged that I can be um, in a space now where I can help educate but also help bring that awareness to you know we're not just tick boxes and um, a lot of the support people might be after could be more physical but then realizing that you know not getting your physical access needs met can impact your mental health and then if your mental health isn't doing great that yep. can impact that and it's it's connected so can help people in the sector I guess realize that and you know disability isn't someone in a wheelchair <laughs> um, isn't just someone you know in a wheelchair doing motivational yep. speaking it's like the average person might what might have to wait two years to get a wheelchair or like um we're not magical beings who overcome everything (laughs) it's like we have lives um yeah it's been really hard I guess realizing that I don't have the capacity anymore to be a full-time teacher um and if I did I would that's all I'd be able to do with the fatigue and symptoms and you know, maybe in the future they might it might change, but I think what I've learnt, I guess, through my life, <laughs> um, because I attach so much of my passion and value and who I was a person to getting, you know, um, to be a teacher and have that degree. Not getting it was quite. Um, or just disappointing and frustrating but when I realized I still have those skills and they can be applied in different areas in different ways it made me realize like I'm a person I don't need to be defined by <laughs> a job or my productivity so yeah it's still yeah. disappointing though and I think I hope that everybody listening to this <laughs> would kind of understand the importance of access needs and something like you have to be a full-time teacher is completely ableist concept that we must remove like that is a loss a massive loss to the educational system that you haven't finished your degree that you're so passionate about and want to do that work you know there's plenty of teachers I know plenty of teachers that come in and do you know replacement work and whatnot you know a day a week or even less and make profound impact on children and that on students you know so I don't think that that should be in place at all and it's really upsetting that that has still stopped you and many others no doubt in you know this day and age like I hope that we can do better because we should yeah I mean there could be an opportunity like if I got to got the degree registered and do like part-time work and all that kind of thing but just the access needs to think well like even a basic thing is like going to the bathroom um, and you need someone to cover the class if you're going to go to the bathroom. But, mm. you know, I can get um, like I'm gluten and dairy intolerant. And then if I had to use a mobility aid, a lot of schools don't have ramps or elevators. Um, no, there's, as I've learned recently. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's hard, but. Some people can make it work, which is amazing. But um, in the end, it was like I can't sacrifice my health. Um, no, absolutely. To do this. And I think it's important to know that if people can make it work, that's great. But that's the 
minority and also it shouldn't be a personal responsibility because at the end of the day it's the loss of all the students that are losing the diverse experience that you and many other disabled potential teachers would bring in so i think that is important and of course if the schools are not accessible disabled children are discriminated against and are impacted by that negatively and if anyone is going to tell me that there's no disabled children in their school they need to rethink that because we know that about one in five Australians have disability and, you know, that number is going to be, you know, close to that number in schools as well, whether you know it or don't know it. If you don't know it, that is um, the person's responsibility. Um, and we'll stop mm. on that. I want to ask you about your writing because that's one of the ways that you're, you know, advocating and, you know, writing on about your experiences and whatnot. So, would you say that your experiences of these diverse identities kind of shaped or are shaping your writing? I think so. Um, for a long time, writing was just a personal expression. So it was like, you know, I'd write and my heart would be on the page and it was all like I'd put something out and like, this is me kind of thing. Yeah. And it was a while ago I realized that um, as a writer I could use those experiences and actually craft them to tell a story or to create meaning or to make a point and use my experiences not as my heart on the page but to inform how to make that art and I've had a kind of very complex uh, relationship with my writing because at one stage with the CRPS in my hand, like I couldn't even write my name without having to stop because of the pain. So it's interesting because it's what I'm most passionate about, but I don't necessarily get to put all my time and energy into it because of like symptoms and pain and all that kind of thing. But there's a lot of authors that I've read, um, even like essays and things like that, that they just hang around with you and it's like your brain just kind of chews on them in the background and then suddenly you'll be like, oh, I understand this. This is really great. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I guess writing for me, I see it kind of as a, a tool and something we can use to educate but also capture life. Yeah, absolutely. When we're recording, it is March 2021. Hopefully, we'll be releasing very soon. Um, but the last yeah. sort of year, I guess it's been just over a year since um, the pandemic has begun. And I know that a lot of people's health has been impacted, myself included. I know that my pain has worsened over this time because I wasn't able to access a lot of the supports that helped me. And my mental health has you know, suffered as well at times. Um, how has this year been for you? Have, you know, have you noticed any kind of improvements, highlights or, you know, difficult moments that you want to talk about? The positives has been I've been able to work from home and I can't tell you how much energy and access that has brought me, um, which has been like a huge relief, but also just being able to work at my own pace and that that has been fantastic but it was a pretty crap year um because when lockdown started so I think it was around this time last year I was due to get um my regular um cortisone injections which help manage my pain and they last for about six to eight weeks so that got cancelled so my pain just kind of built and I couldn't access those injections because I have to go into a hospital room. Um, obviously it's close con contact and they weren't allowed to do it because it wasn't deemed like essential. So my quality of life and um, my work hours reduced because I was in that much pain. And then I mentioned earlier that I did get a yearly infusion that was deemed by my pro private health insurance as not essential and by the hospital. And then when I did get my infusion, I had complications and 
because of the limits on the hospital, I couldn't stay as long as I needed to to resolve the complications. So then that had a lot of effects coming out of hospital. Um, I have had access to telehealth, which has been amazing with my GP to get prescriptions and they'll send the scripts to the pharmacy, which is amazing. And like I've been able to access psychology um, over Zoom, which has been incredible. But being told that my medical needs are not essential and having, like I, I pay a lot of money for my private health insurance to get those insurance to get those infusions, being told, no, yeah. that's not essential, even though I'm paying you so much money per month so I can access that. Um, and also certain medications I'm on became um, hard to get. It was really hard because constantly in the news, we were told, you know, it would only affect people over 65 or with medical conditions or yeah. you're chronically ill, but everyone else would be fine if you're healthy. And constantly being told that it just it's really hard because it's like um and you've seen probably seen what's happened in the UK with um they issued um do not resuscitate orders to a lot of people with disabilities without asking them they just sign them and it was the thought that if this kick if COVID really kicked off in Sydney and I got it and we're in a situation like Italy and there was a healthy man, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, like, um, they wouldn't choose say, yeah. to incubate me. Yeah. Like they would, and it's probably very um, hard to hear, but it's like, I don't think normal or non-disabled people realize what that feels like. And yeah. to hear people and see people still going out on social media catching up with people or seeing celebrities just going to my holiday house we all had COVID tests beforehand and all this stuff and I'm like yeah if you got COVID you would have access to amazing medical care because you've got lots of money and you're healthy but it's like if I got it I'm more at risk more complications and once again I probably would be last on the list and I still don't know if I'm over that and I live quite close, um, well, I'm in Sydney, and when the cluster happened in late December, um, before that, people didn't care. Like, there were 5G conspiracy, coronavirus conspiracy posters all up around my community. Um, I got yelled at at Woolworths for wearing a mask in July or what? August. No one was wearing masks. Um, so it's just, it, it's hard, like, and I'm, I just, I don't think you get over that. And I'm lucky that I have people in my life who obviously value me and I, I value them, but, you know, I've lost contact with some people that I was close with because the way they were talking about the pandemic and I don't think they realized that you know, my life isn't disposable. And even like, it's been amazing to have all these, um, you know, work from home and Zoom meetings and all this kind of thing. Um, but I've been trying to advocate for those from back when I was at uni and it was never deemed essential. And yes. I was at one of the universities trying to advocate they wouldn't record the lectures because you had to show up in person and overnight they just magically happen to be able to record and do yeah. online lectures and it was just it's just it's I don't know hard because it's mind-boggling because as yep. a disabled person or someone who's chronically ill it's like I've been asking for these things for so long and it's like no we can't do this it's too much like but as soon as normal people need it we can do it it's all fine yeah. and now people are talking about removing some of these access needs because we're back to normal COVID's not here and it's like why don't you use this technology to actually employ disabled people like all stay-at-home mums or you know 
I feel that some people would say, well, just be happy that all of these access needs have been met now and move on. But the way that it makes you feel as a human, like you're subhuman, is something that is really difficult for someone to understand. But um, I share that experience of feeling that, you know, we are not prioritized still as humans. We're not asking to be prioritized over someone else, just as equals, as someone who is worthy of saving and someone who is worthy of attending a lecture. So it is really important. And on that note, I'm wondering if you, it's a bit of a, a big question, but if you kind of can tell me, Emily, what does intersectionality mean to you? Yeah, that is a big question. Um, <laughs> I think yeah. the best uh, way intersectionality or what it means to me, I recently read, it was a young adult book and I think it was called Meet Me at the Intersection. I loved the idea that it was actually a physical intersection and that um, I kind of see it in two ways. So the first way is actually how I see myself because for so long I grew up with the medical model of disability. If you're unsure what that is, just do a quick Google and Google will summarize it. And there's this idea that I had these diagnoses and like it's all separate. I've always felt really disjointed. But intersectionality gave me a way to view myself where like it all connects and joins in kind of like if you think of neurons of the brain I guess but it's like a big web or mind map where everything's connected but they all join into one thing and I think being able to use intersectionality to view myself has really made me realize who I am but so yeah intersectionality for myself made me realize like I'm whole and it's okay to have different experiences and different things and that that's okay and then as a broader view I think intersectionality is so important because it allows us I guess to use that same web model to come and see people but meet people and view people as whole being we start seeing people as multi-dimensional or whole beings that have these experiences and we might have the same I might have the same experience with you but you also have separate experiences that I don't know so I think it's a really good framework um, to start viewing ourselves as beings but also other people and I think if we understand personally how we are intersectional we can then begin to realize that other people share that too I hope that makes sense but I think if yeah but just using that meet me at the intersection of going acknowledging that we have similar but different experiences and if we don't start viewing the world and people with an intersectionality in mind we lose a lot of what makes us human so yeah, I think yeah. that's my answer, but um, it changes a lot. And if you even had asked me that a month ago, I probably would have said something different because I'm still learning. And I think if we can carve a space for ourselves and realise that we are intersectional, I think it lets us be at peace with ourselves because it always yeah, has that umbrella for ourselves and our community. And I love that, Emily. And thank you so much again for joining me. We'll have to wrap up in a minute. Um, it's been such a pleasure to chat. Now, if people loved what you said, which I'm sure they will, and they want to check out your writing or your advocacy or all the other beautiful work that you do and your beautiful cat, Jackie, or two, where can they find you? <laughs> um, probably the best place at the moment. Um, I'm on Instagram. Uh, my username's at rambling ravioli. Um, I am on Medium, um, which I'm not sure of my URL. Um, and I'm in the process of kind of creating a website. But if you just follow me on Instagram, um, that's a good place and I'll have any links there. 
Great. And I'll pop all of those links in the show notes as well. Thank you again, Emily. We'll, um, we'll finish for now, but thank you so much. It's been amazing having you on Unmarginalized. No worries. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited about this podcast and I can't wait to hear the other conversations you have. I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording the podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. As we tell our stories, I want to highlight the traditional owners of this land have been storytellers for generations. If you liked this episode, make sure you subscribe and rate the podcast. It helps me reach more people and continue to do these amazing interviews. And to support the ongoing making of the podcast, go to my Patreon account on www.patreon.com. And thank you for joining me.